Well, welcome again to the Springs. Good morning. 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 Thanks for the help there. Helps my emotions. Uh, The video you just saw was from the God's Not Dead 2 movie that just came out in theaters like three days ago. Has anyone had a chance to see it? Anyone in here? Well, here's the thing. Uh, Besides him, we have all of our 27 growth groups are going to be going together at different times to see the movie and process this. Uh, if, If I didn't share this already, I didn't share it. My name is Peter. If you're visiting, thank you for joining us. We're in a series called God's Not Dead, and we're going to today be examining what just happened in this video clip. In this video clip, this is Brooke from the movie in a state of extreme emotional stress, distressed and suffering from having lost her brother, is processing the most important question of life of who is Jesus, who who do I profess him to be, and what does that mean to my life? Today we're going to examine the legitimacy of making such a big decision in such a vulnerable moment. I'm going to say this. A lot of the ideas that we're going to present from God's word today is going to challenge everyone from different states of thinking. So is everyone here ready to be challenged today? What place are you in to process the great questions of life and to process God's word? The title of my message is The Place of Processing. And I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet with me as we go to God's word, and we're going to pretty much stay with 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. It's up on the screen if you don't have your Bible with you, but I encourage you to take notes so that if you disagree with me, you can still agree with God's word wherever that lands you, all right? 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 17 goes like this. Now who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. Everyone say a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it. With gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. God's word. Thank you. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Holy Spirit, thank you for your word. Help us all to process rightly your word today, and the great question of who is Jesus? Help us to prepare a reason for the hope that is real, but I pray the hope that is in us, no matter what we are going through, no matter what hopelessness is around us. Pray that your hope would be in us as a people and that we would be better prepared to give a reason for it. In Jesus' name. Amen. This verse 15, in the middle of all this, is kind of like a hinge verse for this whole passage. And it's been one of my favorite verses for about a decade uh, since coming to know Jesus. Verse 15, in your hearts honor Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you. There are reasons 
for what we believe, for what we feel. Feeling is important. Believing is important. The reasons are important. Hope is important. We're going to process in the coming weeks the great question of who Jesus is. This whole series, God's Not Dead, that we're going through, we're going to be examining reasons for the great question of what we believe about who Jesus is. Now next week, our message is going to be entitled, Real Faith Isn't Blind. We're going to talk about evidence for Jesus in history. The following week, we're going to talk about standing strong in difficult times, having convictions in an age of compromise. And let me tell you, our culture tells you that confidence is arrogance, and we're going to be able to distinguish between the two as it relates to the things and the reasons we process about who Jesus is. And finally, we're going to come full circle to the question of who Jesus is, the great question, as we deduce what he says in Matthew about who do the people say that I am, who do you say that I am, and what that means in the place of where you're capturing and how you're processing it. It's going to be a powerful month that's going to require a lot of intellectual energy, of focus, of bringing all that we are to God's word and to the real questions that people are really asking in our culture today. And I judge that we as a people are brave enough to venture into asking these hard hard questions. Intellectual energy and yet emotional energy. Today, as it relates to this video, as it relates to the general question of us asking these questions as a church, processing the great question of life and what that means, the implication that means for the people who are dead in our families, in our work environments. For us really processing this question, I have to ask the question, what is the place for emotion in the whole area of processing answers What is the place of emotion? Well, you'll find today that wherever you are objectively, Jesus will meet you there. Wherever you are, you don't have to wait till you're in a place devoid of suffering, devoid of vulnerability, devoid of emotion to be able to reason rightly about who Jesus is. Jesus will meet you where you are. Now, again, in this movie, Brooke has just suffered a huge Loss, and she makes a huge emotional decision. We're going to get into what that is. An emotional decision about the entire trajectory of her life, her life allegiance, her faith, her Lord. She makes a decision in a state of pain and suffering. And today, I'm going to argue from Scripture that this is a great and healthy way to make decisions. So stick with me. I have two main points as we see Peter and God's word throw light on the great question of who Jesus is and how we process it. The state of our being as people, intellectual, emotional people, as we process the great question. And the first point is this. The, pre- the place of processing is a place of suffering and pain. The place of processing, us going through these questions, is a place of suffering and pain. You know, suffering is a promise for all people. Some of us think, oh, that's not a promise I want to receive. But nonetheless, no matter where you are, if you have breath in your lungs and 
blood in your veins. You're a human being. Suffering is a promise for you. That's one of the things that links us all together as humans. The question is, is what are we suffering for? That's the real question that distinguishes how we're living our lives. Verse 13 here, it says, Who is there to harm you? Ultimately, the the implication is, ultimately harm you if you are zealous for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. So you're going to suffer, but will you suffer for righteousness sake and have the blessed kind of suffering or the not blessed kind of suffering? There's only two options. We're going to suffer. It goes on to say in the midst of all this, in the midst of your suffering, in that place, in that state, we're processing the great question. Giving reason, preparing to give a reason for the hope that is in us, that we profess. And that, in the midst of the processing in that place, is how verse 16 says we can have a good conscience. This is so hard. When you are slandered, not if you are slandered, when you are slandered, people that revile your good behavior will be put to shame. For it is better, verse 17, to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We're going to suffer. Suffering is one of the things that links all humans together. One of those things that we all have in common. Every culture, every language, every tongue. And typically, people who are skeptic to the reasons for our faith often are quick to point out the existence of suffering and evil in the world as an argument against God's existence. How do we answer this question? How do we prepare to give a reason in the midst of our own suffering? And the thing that we have in common with everyone, even skeptic people. As we'll see that 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 argument, though, breaks down. Clive Staples Lewis was a skeptic in the 20th century that mocked God as he was a professor at Oxford University. And he argued for the existence of of God was an absurd reality in light of the suffering and evil in the world. So he argued against God's existence. He argued for atheism because of evil and suffering. And then at one point, as he was processing why he so had a passionate disdain for the existence of a God he didn't believe in, and the the processing of evil in the world, it, it finally, he worked out that his state of emotional despair showed that there's something beyond just the material in the world. He showed basically that the very reason that I am in a state of pain and suffering and emotional despair shows something more than I'm willing to admit exists. He says this later after, after he processed all of this in his place of suffering and emotional processing. He later converted to Jesus And he says this, he says, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks to us in our consciences, but shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He later concluded that the only reason that he had a problem with the existence of evil is because he was made to seek good. The transcendent, objective good is something he was made for. And that's the only reason, objectively, that he could have a problem with evil in the first place. He said, you don't judge a line as being crooked unless you have a straight line to compare it to. 
And he said, you know what? My problem with evil in the world shows that there is a good that I am meant for, a good that I'm failing at, a good who will rescue me from my evil. He began his quest with God and he later became what any would argue is probably one of the greatest theological apologetic minds in the 20th century, if not in the history of the Christian faith. Suffering is powerful. It can be either powerfully good or aimed powerfully at evil. But suffering can bring a blessing. It says here, uh, have no fear of them, nor be troubled in your hearts. Honor Christ as holy. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, verse 14, you will be blessed. You know, Morgan Stevens, the pastor of, uh, lead pastor of Mosaic Church in Austin, he says, in our suffering, we become better theologians because we don't merely ask the ambiguous what questions about God or whatever else, about reality, but we ask the lucid why questions, which invariably lead us down a road to self-discovery and objective truth discovery. See, it's pain and suffering that is a good place of processing. Many of my football friends, I know of quarterbacks who have said that they, they can't really process what they're to do in the football game until a point of suffering, in essence, that place where they're hit really hard at the first time and they have that lucid moment of pain is when they can rightly process the right routes and, and read the defenses rightly. That's so much like our experience. The, the place of processing, in a healthy way even, is the place of suffering. I, I first came to faith as a young man and right away the people that used to party with me that I wasn't making the parties so fun for their desires anymore, uh, I was inviting them to a new party. And they didn't like that. A lot of them didn't. Some of them did. They ended up liking it when God made them alive with him. But some of them really hated me for this newfound faith that I had. And I was persecuted. There was a lot of antagonistic energy aimed at me. A lot of rumors spread about why is it that he's waiting till marriage for sex? That's just weird. Let's start these uh, awful, perverse rumors about him. And you know what? That hurt. It was a painful moment where I had to process what I believed when my friends were spreading rumors that I'm brainwashed and I'm so crazy for this new faith. I want to tell you that was one of the greatest blessings that I've ever experienced. Because that, in that moment of antagonism, I had to process what is it that I really believe? Are there reasons for the hope that I really do feel inside of me? That place of processing the suffering that God provided for me by evil people, allowing them to persecute me, that was a great place. In fact, if you look in Christian history, it's the time of greatest suffering and greatest persecution that the church has grown the most. Going into the the fourth century, about 300 A.D., the church had been persecuted so much and, and had, had, had been persecuted and tried to be annihilated two or three times by various Roman emperor, emperors. Diocletian, actually the, the emperor of Rome at the, the changeover from the third to the fourth century, he tried to destroy all Christian writing. And it so emboldened the church that the church got together and memorized every point of scripture before the scripture was officially canonized. 
Suffering is a good thing for Christian processing. The place of processing is a place of suffering and pain. Now, point two is this. The place of processing is an emotional place. I'm going to pick on a lot of our preconceptions about emotions today. But I'm going to ask you, as I seek God's word and declare some things that we see God redeem emotions, I'm going to ask you to process this in your state of being. We tend to pick on emotions as if emotions are our enemy and not something that God created to help us worship him. The place of processing, a healthy place, is an emotional place. In essence, I could say it this way. Making emotional decisions is good processing. I didn't get a whole lot of amens there. (laughs) Check this out, though. Making good emotional decisions is good processing. Now, I know that's a provocative thought, but why is it that it's so difficult to agree with there? What, why have we conditioned our thinking so wrongly, I would argue, so as to think that healthy processing is devoid of emotion entirely? You know, in my conversation with a lot of people that are skeptical of the faith in the last few decades— I have to say, I haven't heard a whole lot of new intellectual reasoning against God. I haven't heard a lot of philosophical or empirical data that leads me to to process any new thing. Often it's really just emotional brokenness, maybe the loss of a loved one or legitimately a, a, a person in the church hurting their feelings, which is not good. That's led to intellectual shortcuts or unreasonable claims they they gather. And I'm not saying that that's illegitimate. I'm saying that all of us process emotionally and their processing emotionally in a bad way has led them to pitfalls intellectually. And for us, we don't battle those emotional decisions with decisions devoid of emotion. We desire healed emotional decisions. That's what God's word lifts up. That's what God's word commands. Emotional things. Now, in Peter's exhortation, in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, being prepared, always being prepared to give a defense for anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, do it with gentleness and respect. That processing, as we've already said, is sandwiched with suffering. Verse 13 and 14 talk about suffering, and the verses after it, verse 16 and 17, talk about suffering. It's sandwiched by suffering. But I want you to I want to see this little prelude to all of this. The prelude is in verse 13. It describes this ideal state of being that we should aspire to if we're to process things rightly. And it's easy to miss it if we, if we read too fast through Scripture. Peter describes this ideal state of being that we should process. He says, if you're like this, then what's going to be wrong with you? You're doing just fine. Who can harm you? And this ideal state of being is more an emotional state of health than anything else. It's being zealous for good. Verse 13, 
Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And so I ask you this. Are you zealous for good or are you hardened by sin? Are you full of zealous, righteous emotion for good or are you full of unhealthy emotion? Or worst of all, has your brokenness taught you that it's healthy to suppress emotion entirely? Emotional volatility is not a healthy thing. But I would argue that emotional stoicism and suppression is even unhealthier. Because God's word doesn't produce emotional stoics. It produces zealous firebrands for God's word. That's what God's word does. Jesus is full of emotion. And he wants us to be zealous. That's how we are to process the things of God with healthy, holy emotion. In fact, let's, let's bring up this word zealous that's used here. The Greek transliteration is zelotes, one burning with zeal, most eagerly desirous of. That is an emotional disposition that will find a Lord to worship. Zealous. Are you zealous though for the Lord? Are you zealous for other things? We're all emotional. We all suffer but is it healthy, zealous, righteous emotion? You know, being got right with God, this ideal state of being that says if you're right with God like this, who can harm you? Again, it has little to do with the great question of life being answered intellectually and more being in line with God, being right with God emotionally. The secret to life is actually having your emotions, your desires rightly ordered, not suppressed. The place of processing is an emotional place. Let me show you one other spot where I see this here in the scripture. I, uh, I, I wrongly misquoted for about a decade verse 15 here. I said it was one of my favorite verses, and I wrongly misquoted it. I always read verse 15 as, In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord is holy, always being prepared to give a reason for your faith. It doesn't say that, though. It says, a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, a hope is an assurance that is at least an emotional expression an emotional state of health that only God's word can bring you. Maybe I was just, you know, uh, uncomfortable emotionally to admit that. And I had to therefore misquote scripture so many times. And then it goes on to say, now, as you're giving this reason, do so with intellectual scrutiny. No, with qualities that are fitting for emotional reproduction, gentleness, respect. God calls us to process things and to grow in being emotionally healthy. And we wrong, we wrongly associate emotion with unstable, right? We, we give emotion, the word emotional, this pejorative sense like, oh, he's so emotional, right? Man, if anyone's ever describing you, I hope that you would think that they would, they would say, oh man, this, what if we said this? Man, this guy, he's so emotional. He's so passionate and zealous for God's word. He, he's rightly emotional. I could trust him with anything. What if emotional wasn't something 
that we had to look bad at. We need to bring sexy back to emotional. Because God's word does not spit on emotional. It redeems it. The absence of emotion is not the key to holiness, but it's the presence of godly emotion. We were made with emotion. Why are we so afraid of it? God made us in his image, and we're made as emotional beings. So why do we say things like, she made an emotional decision, and what we mean is, she made an illegitimate decision? Now, my answer might surprise you. I think our tendency to insist on processing without emotions comes not from sound reasoning, nor from healthy doctrine, but ironically, from a state of emotional brokenness. Now, if I haven't bothered you at all yet, then just listen to this. I would argue that women in general are more emotionally strong than men with how God designed us. Just like men are more physically strong. I don't think any of us would argue that. Men are more physically strong. Now, the enemy can pervert any strength and use it for his kingdom. But I believe women are emotionally stronger. And for some reason, women have got such a bad rap. Like we say, oh man, that woman, she's so emotionally weak. What we mean is she's so emotional that it must be a weakness. Well, Ravi Zacharias, he's a a renowned apologist and theologian, helped me to see it. He, He pointed out, he said, women more readily correlate emotional desires with intellectual realities. Like there is... There's a correlation there. There, Women process things and don't make separate baskets, whereas men tend to make separate. It's hard for us to to connect the two. Is that because we're emotionally strong? No, I would argue that we're missing something. We need help. We're not lifting the emotional weight very well there. Women are typically stronger. Now, just like anything can be abused, I, I think God's made men with certain sexual passions and strengths that uh, praise the Lord. In the kingdom of God, it's used in a healthy marriage in a great way, right? But God can also pervert any strength in us, whether it's sexual things, emotional things, intellectual reasoning, rhetorical mastery, someone who can preach God's word, or any of the things, artful craft desires, uh, singing, anything that is innately human and represents the character and person of God, the enemy can use and abuse as a strength. But our tendency to try to suppress any of those things as opposed to see God redeem them is a state of sin and brokenness. You know, many of us grew up in a home with mothers that were emotionally volatile and fathers that were often emotionally passive. And while I would argue that both are a result of sin, I would argue that the more operative, culpable sin is that of the father. Because if the father is emotionally healthy enough to emotionally engage his family, it sets the tone for an environment where all the strengths and weaknesses in the kingdom of God are allowed to flourish. Our tendency to try to suppress emotion is a result of our brokenness, and it's not a result of God's word. And we process the great question of who is Jesus and what does that mean for me and my work and what I think is my life, what I think is my career, what I think is my sexuality. We process it from a state of emotional 
lucidness because of the suffering that God has allowed. And in his sovereignty, he wants to use emotion, suffering, and everything for us to make good emotional decisions. Now, what about God? You know, it says in verse 15, in your hearts, prepare to honor Christ as holy, being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you. There's a correlation between me honoring God and me being prepared to give a reason. And that state of processing, I've said it is a state of suffering. It is a state of emotion. But there's a correlation between me honoring him and me processing this rightly. And it begs, it begs that, that, that desire in me to, answer this, to ask this question. If I'm made in God's image and I'm honoring him as holy, what does that have to do with me processing these great questions? If I'm made in his image, is he an emotional being? Is his word something that lifts up emotion and, and causes me to come in, in alignment with him emotionally? Well, one of the old commands, hear, O Israel, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the times of, of testing, It's an emotional command. God commands your emotion. You're not a victim to your emotions. Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's commanding his lordship over your emotions. Paul says rejoice always. Well, what if I don't feel it? Feel it, he said. And in faith, his lordship can bring into alignment our thinking our emotions, he can redeem everything. He wants us to make good emotional decisions about who he is. Who is God the Father? He is zealous being, full of passion. He is jealous for his people. God the Father is full of wrath for the sin that abuses his holiness and his children. He is jealous He so loved the world that he sent his son. God the Father is full of emotion. What about Jesus? The son, he is not an emotional stoic. He was full of anger when he cleansed the temple. He was grieved over Jerusalem, full of paternal passion as he was praying over the city he so loved. He wept for his friend as he lay dead in the grave. And he wept bloody tears in the garden facing separation with his father. Jesus is full of emotion. What about the Holy Spirit? Jesus calls him the comforter. Now, if that's not an emotional strength that he projects, I don't know what is. And in Galatians 6, it says that if you're united with the Holy Spirit, there's a certain fruit that will emanate from that union. And let's examine this fruit and see what kind of fruit it is. Love. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And I would argue that self-control is pretty much tantamount, the same as emotional self-control. Self-control is the ability to control your emotions as opposed to being controlled by them or trying to suppress them, which is probably the worst kind of being controlled by them. The question is, is are you using your emotions to glorify God or your emotions the Lord over you? 
The place of processing is a place of suffering and of pain, and it is an emotional place. My stepdad was a really liberal lawyer, and he was a good man. Um, but when I had my faith encounter with Jesus as a young man, he, uh, he wasn't a fan of that decision and how I was processing things. And he, he, in fact, he said that I was making an emotional decision and I was in a phase, uh, told me I was brainwashed, and he was, he was pretty smart. So this was really hard things for me to process. He said I was going through, a, a, he called it an evangelical phase, and he found out soon enough that it was a pretty long phase, apparently, when I became a pastor 12 years later. And in those years, we'd had some really healthy skirmishes about things and really uh, lucid conversations, sometimes ending in yelling, uh, other times peaceful. Very few of those happened. Um, but sometimes he just wasn't able to talk about things and he would avoid the conversation. I learned later that that had a, re- a major emotional element to it too. And my, I've, I would get emotionally volatile all the time in, in the midst of all this. But 12 years after my faith encounter, my stepfather was diagnosed with ALS, which is, I don't think there's any good way to die, but this is the worst. It's a debilitating, digressive thing. And what happened in the midst of all that is our conversations got to be a lot more real. And he was able to expose some of the emotional pain behind his, his reasons uh, for, for not placing his hope in Jesus. And on a night where his beloved Oregon Ducks lost the national championship and we, lo- we watched it live, and it seems silly, but at this point he didn't, he didn't know if he had any more days to live and this was one of the main things he wanted to see happen, and it didn't happen. And the emotional pain and suffering based on what had, was produced there, that night in February of 2011, we were able to have a really honest, healthy discussion. And he made an emotional decision to cast his cares on Jesus. And a few months later, he went to be with Jesus. Be prepared to give a reason for your, the hope that is in you. You know, our hope is not in an idea or an intellectual assertion, but it's in a person, and it's in a person that's perfect. And he's perfect emotionally. In fact, let's read these last few verses. Verse 18, verse 17. Let's, let's not leave it there. Verse 17 says, It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. But verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Listen, our hope for being whole is that at the fullness of time, Jesus, who lived the life that we should have lived, made a decision to die the death that we should have died so that we could have life. What kind of decision was it? It was a very emotional decision. In fact, Scripture would back me. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He had an overwhelming, holy, sanctified, emotional joy as he felt the nails in his hands and his feet and yet saw you with joy so that we could be here right now processing who is he and who is he to me. Would you pray with me? 
Lord, help us to rightly process this great question and help us to see that where we are, where we are is a place where you'll meet us. Where we are, no matter what we're suffering, no matter the place of our emotions, Jesus, you desire to bring broken pieces and make a beautiful thing out of it. I pray that everyone in here, even as we're dismissing and closing up, that, that they would open themselves to you to see if I'm just now starting to make a, a decision of faith for, for Jesus, or if I'm later down the road processing it, that the great questions and the great reasons and the great hope that we're projecting to a broken world, that you would meet us in our brokenness. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's never fully, finally given in to who you are and said, I give myself away to you, I pray that you'd help them do it even now. Even now, God. Amen. Would you stand to your feet with me, please? Again, we want to carry on this discussion about this great question. And we invite you, in the coming weeks especially, to process this with with us in growth groups. Diccion, sorry about that. Uh, Process this with us in growth groups. And if you're not a part of a growth group yet, you can see any of us really in here, but especially at the connection table. Um, Again, this whole month, uh, we're going to be doing the God's Not Dead series with two services, 10 a.m., and 11.30. So at this point, we're dismissed. Thanks.